Well, welcome to the LSE for this evening's Department of Management Public Lecture. My name is Beverly Skeggs, and I'm Professor of Sociology and the incoming Academic Director of the LSE's Atlantic Fellows Programme. It's a huge honour to be here tonight uh, to welcome Jamie Woodcock, because I have the pleasure of knowing Jamie for many years and have watched his progress to the extent that Jamie has managed to write the book that I would have loved to have written. It's so well written. He wrote a brilliant PhD, which is in an entirely different language to the book. This makes it very, very popular and very readable, so I'm very proud to be here to introduce him. Jamie's a fellow in the Department of Management where he teaches on the LSE Masters in Human Resources and Organisations and the Masters in Management, Information Systems and Digital Innovation. Tonight, though, Jamie will share an experience that extends well beyond, although very useful for management studies, I'd say, uh, well beyond the classrooms of the LSE and classrooms anywhere in academia. He's going to be talking about working in a call centre which is typically, obviously, a place of low pay, low security and high stress. But rarely do we ever gain access to a true picture of what goes on in those call centres when phones are returned to their hooks. And for many of us, our only interaction with call centres is one of complete frustration and annoyance and irritation. So this is a book written from the perspective of the workers. In an attempt to understand the methods of control and management and resistance taking place in call centres, Jamie had to go undercover, which are quite rare in social research. The emotional and physical strain of six months of working in this environment, which I can definitely attest to, he got paler and paler and kind of shrunk more and more he did the research, um, are all very, very do well documented in this book, Working the Phones, Control and Resistance in Call Centre. It's his first book and it's attracting a lot of attention. The Financial Times, no less, calls it a worthwhile investigation of an office job where staff can be fired at whim. While the BBC Radio 4's Thinking Aloud shortlisted it for their annual Ethnography Award, run in partnership with the British Sociological Association, and we're delighted to welcome Alpashar too, who was the judge, one of the judges from the BBC Ethnography Award, who can be with us too this evening to discuss the book in more detail. Alpa will respond to uh, Jamie's short lecture, and we're very much looking to hear what she thinks as an ethnographer herself. Um, Jamie's going to describe to you what ethnography is, and we will probably have a debate about that. But before that, I'll just say a bit about the format of the event. Jamie will be speaking for 25 minutes, then Alpa will respond to him, and she has the privilege of opening the discussion, and then we'll open the floor to questions. Um, for those of you who want to take the discussion offline, there's a Twitter hashtag called hashtag LSE phones, but please can you put your phones on silent not to disrupt the event. The evening's event is being recorded and will be made available as a video and a podcast on the LSE's website, subject to no technical difficulties. 
But will you please join me now in welcoming Dr. Jamie Woodcock to the stage to deliver his lecture, Working the Phones, Investigating Control and Resistance in the Modern Workplace. Welcome, Jamie. So thank you very much uh, for the introduction, and it's lovely to be introduced by my old uh, PhD supervisor, you know, much old in terms of PhD supervision, um, who was invaluable in the process uh, of pulling together uh, the research that came into this book. So what I want to start off with is to explain why I decided to do a project that involved going into a call centre in the first place. So really my interests, my research interests are around work. Work remains the thing that most of us, the vast majority of us, will do for most of our time. And so understanding how we work, why we work, who we work for, what we do when we work, I think is of primary importance to how we understand uh, the world today. And it's through ethnography, through submersing yourself you know, in an experience or in a situation, as if you were one of the people inside of that situation, I think we can gain a glimpse into these kind of examples. We can understand different kinds of work. And there used to be a rich tradition of doing this kind of workplace research. You know, in the 60s, you know, academics going and working in factories and talking to workers and really trying to gain an in-depth understanding of what these, at the time, new kinds of work were. You know, what was it like to work on an assembly line? However, today, in the UK, you know, increasingly people don't work uh, in manufacturing but work in service work. And often with call centres, these are built directly on top of old uh, mines in the northwest or the northeast, or old manufacturing uh, buildings are converted over to call centres. And so what I wanted to understand is, what is it like to do this kind of work? What kind of pressures are people under? What's the experience like? How do people resist? How does it affect their lives? And I wanted to do that by going into a call centre. And it's true that nowadays... Undercover research has become increasingly rare. Uh, it's not something that's done uh, so often. And again, thanks to Bev uh, for supporting going undercover in a, uh, in a call centre. But really, there's no other way to gain access to, to a call centre. If you go to a call centre manager and say, I want to find out how stressful the work is, how difficult it is, uh, it's unlikely that a manager is going to say, go on then, please go in and document our dubious employment practices and the way we treat people. And I think it's very important that researchers ask those kinds of questions. You know, not just to take the no from a gatekeeper who doesn't let us into, into a workplace, but find ways to access the experience of people who live this day-to-day -day and go through these experiences. Uh, so I chose the site for, for my research in the way that many people choose this kind of precarious employment. Signing up to an advert online giving your details and, and kind of letting the, uh, the kind of process unfold from there. And for the call centre, what this meant was having to leave an answer phone message, you know, presumably to prove you can use the phone and that you can talk over the phone, and then being called in to, to an interview, not knowing what you'd be selling, exactly where it would be, but following that path that many people, uh, that many people go along to, to find this kind of work. And I eventually... Uh, got to the call centre that would be the site of the research. Uh, call centre in North London. Uh, I'm not going to go into any more details about uh, the, the, the name of the call centre or the location. But it only became apparent, once I was through the doors, what it is I would be doing over the next uh, six months or so. 
After making uh, towers out of straws uh, and proving a number of team-building exercises, proving that I could sell the pen to the supervisor to show my nous with, with sales abilities, uh, I was offered uh, the job in this call center. Uh, and it became apparent what I would be doing for the next six months, and that was selling life insurance over the phone. Uh, and this is a difficult thing to do in many ways. Uh, life insurance, by the kind of nature of, uh, uh, of the name, is a very long-term commitment. Uh, and although most of the people you called in the call center, there was some kind of relationship had been developed at first, perhaps left some details somewhere or had been contacted previously, it was in essence cold calling. Uh, so cold calling people to buy uh, life insurance was the main uh, activity that I would be doing over the time there. And the kind of basic premise was that you had this, this cheap uh, or free life insurance product that you offered that would give virtually no payout that people would sign up for, and you would then try to sell a number of products on top of this. So, you know, a, a much more uh, expensive and detailed life insurance policy. And this would mean that during the process, you know, people would be thinking they were getting something for free and would then be hard sold uh, over the phone. But before I get into exactly how that worked, I want to talk you through a kind of average day uh, in the call center. Every single day uh, began the same way. Uh, I worked only afternoons and evenings because you know, people are unlikely to buy life insurance in the morning. You want to be able to reach people when you can get to them. So you come into the call center. You have to put your phone in a locker. You have to lock away your phone so you can't have any distraction on the, on the call center floor. And you're called in for a buzz session. Now, a buzz session is an attempt to motivate people for the task ahead. So to get you excited about selling life insurance or you know, whatever uh, you're going to be doing. And in general, this fell down into a couple of, uh, uh, of different activities. We'd play games together. Uh, or we'd sing songs. Uh, so we would all sing together, perhaps, or we would do uh, my favorite, the knowing the rules of the call center quiz, where these would be called out, and the person who performed the best might get you know, five minutes off at uh, the time of their shift. And this is the kind of first indication that perhaps it's difficult to manage a call center. How do you encourage somebody? How do you get them motivated to sell uh, life insurance? It's a difficult thing to do. And this is a, essentially an attempt to you know, inject a bit of life into the work. This idea that you need to use your personality to kind of encourage you uh, to get excited about, about what's coming next. When you get onto the call center floor, uh, the first thing you notice is there's a, a, a large... Uh, television hung above the, the floor with every single person's name uh, kind of cycling through. And then next to it is the number of sales they've made. So in real time, you can compare yourself to every single other person on the call center floor. And for a lot of that, I was quite near the bottom, you know, struggling to make a, a, enough sales. But you get a sense of how you compare to everybody else. At the end of every single row is a whiteboard with your name, with a number of circles indicating how many sales you need to get. And you start to get this sense of a constant pressure that you have to hit a certain number of sales per hour, that you have to start achieving. And these are built up uh, with one-to-one -one meetings. Uh, so once a week, I would meet with a supervisor. They'd go over my sales, talk about my performance. Uh, we'd have to agree another set of targets for the next week. And then you'd have to sign the, the, the form at the end. And I... 
uh, kept every single one of these weekly forms because I said I wanted to uh, look over them and revise them at home and make sure I was performing well enough. Uh, and they include, uh, on, on almost every single page, be more assertive. Don't take no for an answer. The, the one that always fascinated me, every no is one step closer to a yes. Um, which meant when I was doing badly, I felt, don't worry, just around the corner, you're going to get that yes, Jamie, you've had quite enough no's at this point. Uh, give 110% to every call. You know, remember your ABCs, parroting Glen Gary, Glen Ross. Always be closing. Always look for that sale. Every opportunity, you know, every call is that opportunity to make the sale. Which, if you think about it, Life insurance isn't something everybody's going to buy. Certainly not something everybody's going to buy over the phone. Every call isn't really an opportunity. There are only a certain limited number. But what this does is pressure you into thinking that if only you could try harder, if only you could put in that extra little bit, you could make those targets in the call center. And the process of making sales <clears throat> starts with, you know, you read from the script. And this script is kind of indelibly burnt uh, into the back of my mind. I could repeat it word for word. Now, I, I won't bore you all with it, but I could repeat it word for word. And in essence, if you were to do this, if you were to read the script out over the phone, you would never make a sale. You know, if you were to robotically read the script out, nobody's going to say, okay, yeah, I'm going to part with my money. I'm going to give you my bank details. And so instead, what you're expected to do is to build rapport along, alongside the script, to find out snippets of information that might come in useful later. It's life insurance, so perhaps how many children they have. Figuring out how old they are. You know, do they have any dependents that you could, you could talk about later on? What kind of job they do? What kind of job security they might have? And taking these snippets of information and using them later on as leverage to convince them that they need to buy the product. And so throughout the script, there are these points that you have to <clears throat> go a little bit further to perhaps what they call painting a picture, uh, turning the features into benefits, finding ways to, 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 to use your emotions in various ways to try and convince somebody that they should part with their money. And I want to give a couple of examples uh, of how you do this. The key way was to make jokes. Uh, and in the training, we were told, you know, use your humor, use your personality. You know, you can make a joke about life insurance and you'll, you'll close the sale. Now, inevitably, people made the same two jokes in every single phone call. Um, partly because humor is a difficult thing. Uh, it's a difficult thing to do one-to-one -one over the phone with no body language. And so you don't want to risk annoying or upsetting somebody. And so you fall back into the, the regular pattern. And the two jokes were, so as you were confirming the details, you have to make sure... Uh, people are eligible, they live in the UK and so on, in order to, to take out the insurance policy. So you say, could you confirm that you spend seven out of 12 months a year in the UK? And is this where you pay your taxes? And so the, the, the jokes that you can make here is, oh, so no long holidays planned this year, when people say they spend over you know, 11 or, or, or 12 months. We go, oh, no, if only I was taking a, a five-month holiday this year, wouldn't that be great? And then... After the taxes part, you say, no escaping that then, is there? People go, oh, no, of course not. And for the customer, this is a kind of strange moment. Somebody's joking with them about taxes or long holidays. It's unusual. You have a bit of a laugh. For the customer, it happens once. For the person working in the call center, they get to relive that same joke 
over and over and over and over again. And you can hear it kind of ringing out across the call center as people get to that point. I thought at one stage I'd elaborate on it slightly. Uh, so this was a, around the time of the Vodafone tax scandal, if people remember this. Uh, so I started adding, there's no way to escape that, then it's there, unless you're Vodafone. Now, this got a huge laugh. You know, people really like this as a joke. Uh, the supervisors, not so keen on it. Um, and I don't want to imply that the call centre perhaps had some dubious tax arrangements, uh, but I'm just going to leave that one uh, there. Uh, and the next, there's a, a, a second joke uh, later on, which is, we need to tell you about some of the exclusions on the policy. So things that they won't pay out for. And one of them is, you won't be covered for death if it's the result of an illegal act. And every single person makes the same joke. So if you're planning to rob a bank, we wouldn't pay out. And again, this gets the kind of same laughter, but you get to relive it over and over again. Now, in essence, what this is about doing is about trying to build a human relationship with somebody over the phone. To mobilize your emotions... A bit like the classic example of the airline uh, attendants, you know, smiling at customers, making them feel at ease on, on the aeroplane. But doing this only over the phone. Uh, and Taylor and Bain have talked about this as smiling down the phone, finding ways to build that connection, but lacking the kind of uh, body language or, or, or other things that we use when we, when we utilize our emotions in, in various other ways. And what this creates for management in the call center is a kind of contradiction. You're expected to make as many sales as possible. So you have very hard quantitative targets. Uh, on one of the, the sales uh, packages that I sold on, it was 1.25 an hour. Um, so this is cold calling life insurance and getting at least one sale per hour. Um, now, of course, most of the phone calls are people slamming the phone down or, or telling you to get lost or, or, or whatever. Um, so in reality, it means converting kind of you know, a quarter or, or a third of the genuine conversations you have into sales. Now, these quantitative targets make it very stressful for people working there. You're expected to close those sales. You're not expected to take a no. You're expected to go through to the end. And this has an effect on the kind of qualitative dimension of the work, the experience customers have, the experience you have working there. And that, so you get this contradiction between trying to make as many sales as possible and having a kind of quality level of customer service. And when these two come into, into contact, uh, it's very difficult to resolve. And this has been described in the literature as the kind of feeling of an assembly line in the head. Anybody who's ever worked in a call center might have that feeling. You get this feeling of a kind of whooshing noise at the end of a call because you know the next one's about to come in. There's no break, no matter how difficult a phone call is, uh, before starting the next one. And to illustrate this, I want to give two examples of difficult phone calls, which, whilst in their own way, uh, are you know, very difficult things to happen, they're the kinds of calls that you would get quite regularly when dealing with, with life insurance, because ultimately you're talking to people uh, about death. Um, and so the, the, the first one, I, I called up a customer who had previously had the free offer, uh, and we were again trying to, uh, to upsell them. And going through and, uh, and getting their details, you still at the same address, cracking the joke about long holidays again, asking how many dependents they had, was it still two? Uh, and the, the customer said, no, no, it's one now. And now at that moment, you have that kind of split second, what's going to happen next in the phone call? Uh, and I said, you know, do you want to continue with the phone call? Is everything okay? 
And the customer started sounding quite distressed and started recounting this story of, of losing uh, a child to leukemia. Now, in the call center, you're not allowed to end a phone call unless a customer explicitly says no. You challenge them and they explicitly say no again. So a couple of times I led into this, are you sure you want to continue with the phone call? We can reschedule for another time or so on. But one of the things you get working in call centers is you speak to people who want to have a chat. You know, they might have been through something difficult. They want to have that, that engagement. Perhaps they haven't spoken to somebody else about it. And so the customer got more and more upset. And it was at that point I noticed the supervisor listening in uh, to the phone call and coming over. And as the customer was saying, you know, it's been so difficult and, you know, I'm so distraught and so on, they said, this is your sale. This person knows about death. You know, they know about loss. This is the person you can close the sale with. And at that point, I just hung up. I said, I'm terribly sorry. You know, I'm really sorry for upsetting you. I'm going to end the call. Uh, you know, I hope, you know, best wishes and so on, and, and hung up the phone call. And was taken into the office for an unofficial disciplinary for, for breaking the rules in the call center. And the second example is very similar, but this one was a customer who... Uh, had had, again, the offer, and it was an attempt to upsell. But they were waiting for dialysis uh, in a hospital and said, you know, I don't really have time for this. You know, I'm actually expected to die within a year. And again, the supervisor said, this is your sale. We don't ask health questions. Tell them that. Go to close the sale. Uh, and again, the customer found it very, very difficult to uh, end the phone call. Uh, you know, again, probably just wanted somebody to talk to. Um, but the moment those calls finish... You know, no matter how distressing or difficult they are, you have the next customer on the line. With only five seconds between the end of the phone call and the start of the new one if you need to make any notes. And it's this kind of breaking down of what could be a social interaction where you get to make a connection with somebody. You get to have a conversation with them into a regimented, tailorized experience where everything is timed, everything is monitored to the second, that really gives you a sense of what it's like to work in a high-pressure cold call uh, call center. And one of the, you know, there's a classic example of, you know, toilet breaks being timed to the second and so on. And you would have these printouts of exactly how you did, how you performed, how long it took you to move from one call to the next. And it's in this kind of environment that's very difficult to motivate people. And one of the most successful ways to motivate people in the call center... Um, was actually to let people go home early. This is quite unusual. I've n I'd never worked in a workplace where you're allowed to go home early if you performed well or you know, as a kind of reward. And I think it comes across to me as if the supervisors were aware of how difficult the work was, of how unpleasant it was, and saw that rather than giving you a, a five-pound voucher or entering you into a raffle or you know, a dinner once a month or, or so on, that the best reward for working in this call center was to let you go home early. You know, you made your sales and you could hang up and you could walk out the door. And during the time I was there, you know, this would be a regular thing. People would shout, if you get one more sale, you can leave. If you hit your sales, you know, you get your six or seven, you can go. And at one point, the, the main kind of boss of the call center came in and we overheard a discussion with the supervisors that he had discovered that they were only... Uh, for the time they were paying people to come in, only 79% of that time was spent on the phones. So over one in five uh, hours was spent by people, as he said it, 
watching daytime TV or sitting in the pub. Um, and this benefit suddenly disappeared because ultimately if the main employer is paying for all of that time, shouldn't they be paying for people to be on the phones? Um, and so instead we would start having training uh, in a separate room where we would just get to sit, uh, take our phones out and spend some time off the phones if we, if we made our sales. And what I think is important about this is the recognition that this is very difficult, stressful, you know, emotionally draining work almost comes across from the management too. And so what I want to do with the remaining uh, part of the talk is to talk about the resistance that I found. Because ultimately in these kinds of conditions, many call centers lack any formal trade union representation. They're seen as places, and we get this kind of popular image of call centers. Uh, anybody who's watched the BBC documentary, this kind of, it's a horrible workplace, people go there, you know, they have maybe some fun at, at various stages and then they move on to something else. There's no sense of resistance. There's no sense of a collective way to change the work. When we're called by call centres, we only ever hear a disembodied voice. We don't see what's happening on the call centre floor. And in the first couple of months, I didn't find much resistance. You know, you start to have this, is there anything going to happen? You know, am I going to discover anything? And this is the case, I think, if you were to do undercover research anyway. You have to be there long enough to start picking up on things. To find that actually, the resistance that you're looking for, you start having to do to make the shifts bearable. You know, to get by through the shifts. To become the, the pale and, <laughs> and shrinking PhD figure. Um, but, you know, in the buzz sessions at the beginning, if... Each of you go around and ask a different question. Oh, could you clarify this rule about the call centre? Or, oh, I'm not sure about this bit. You could squeeze 5, 10, 15 minutes of extra time in the buzz session and reduce the overall length of your shift. That if when the servers went down, every now and again they would have to be refreshed with new leads, if you pretended to make phone calls and winked to other people to get them to pretend to make phone calls, you could make it look like you were working when you weren't. If you went out for the break and came back through to the tea room and hit the reset button on your computer, you could reset the 15-minute timer. You could squeeze you know, another few minutes off your break. And these kind of small micro-practices of resistance were everywhere in the call centre. Once you knew where to look for them, you saw them uh, all over the place. You know, Maybe it was pulling on the cord of the headphone too much to make sure that the connection went down and you'd have to go and sit in a training room for a while, that there were lots of these different practices. And that most importantly, the huge turnover in call centres. In many call centres, it can be as much as 50% a month. So imagine half the workforce leaving each month. Seems like the most kind of surrendering act, the act that you can do no more, that you've had enough, that you're going to go on to somewhere else is actually a moment of refusal from people, saying, I won't take this anymore. I won't be talked to like that by my manager. I won't have another phone call where I have to do that. Is that, in a sense, that's quite like a strike. You leave the workplace. It's just with a strike, you say you won't come back until you've you know, had a demand that's reached. You know, better pay, better conditions, or whatever it is. Is that actually these call centers, at least the one that I studied, was alive with resistance. Sometimes individual, in other times collective. Towards the end of the study, we started meeting in a pub uh, near, the, near the call centre. 
kind of somewhat ironically in a, a quiet corner of the pub with an old Soviet-era communist flag, which, you know, you kind of think your first meeting with people from the workplace isn't going to be under uh, a red flag, but in this case, with this uh, hipster pub with fake books on the wall, it was indeed uh, under a communist flag. Talking about how we could, you know, for example, stop that one supervisor who was particularly bullying. What could you do about, you know, the fact some of us weren't getting the hours we wanted, or you didn't have access to holiday pay? And in the book, I detail that experience of trying to organise with people, trying to get people together to talk about work. And part of the book comes from the discussions that I had with people. You know, how do you do these things in, in workplaces without the traditions of union organising that, you know, other workplaces like perhaps universities have? And I want to just end on a couple of stories about uh, the organising. The first is... I had been in a trade union before, uh, as had one other person in the call centre, but nobody else had ever been in a trade union before. Um, didn't quite understand what they were or, or why you would join one. Uh, and so we joined the CWU, uh, which is the Communication Workers Union. Uh, or at least we tried to. We called a call centre that handles the recruitment. So we had this strange moment of saying, we're from a call centre, we're talking to you in a call centre, we'd like to join uh, the union. Uh, and we had a bit of a mix-up, and we weren't contacted by the organiser, and we finally got through to the organiser, and she said, fantastic, it's great to have a group of call centre workers. You've just missed the organising meeting. Uh, and we said, oh, when's the next one? She said, it's in six months' time. And we said, you know, we're really sorry, but none of us are going to be here in six months' time. You know, we'll have moved on to other things, we'll, have, we'll be working elsewhere. And so instead, we just decided to organise unofficially, and thought, you know, if the time comes and we need to join a union, we'll, we'll do that. And to one of the people I organised with, the closest example she could find to being in a trade union was she said it would be like being in Dumbledore's army. Uh, now, I didn't understand the reference at the time, uh, but I think it's somewhat telling that this kind of magical wizard army is the closest kind of example. But it also gives a sense of the excitement of organising, that it would be like a secret club, that you would be doing something antagonistic, that you'd have to hide it from supervisors, that it would give you something to do while you're at work. You know, you could figure out that new person, are they going to get involved? You know, where do you think they, they sit on these things? And so although nothing came officially of the organising that we did in the call centre, what I hope is that everybody I met during that time took that experience of organising together, of talking about their work, of talking about that guy who wanted to speak about call centres and decided to do his research there. I, I always told the, the people I worked with what I was doing. They were completely baffled by it. They said, why don't you go and study something much more exciting? Um, but I hope they take that experience on with them somewhere else. Once you've organised together, it gives you a sense that there is perhaps another way than just leaving on your own. And so that's what I want to end on now is how I left. Uh, so by the end of the six months, I stopped trying to make so many sales and started to bump along the bottom uh, to just to kind of see what would happen because I had an ulterior motive to stay unlike uh, lots of other people there. I had to finish my research. Um, so I started wearing trainers to work uh, instead of smart shoes, which was against the rule. Um, this was because it was much more comfortable when you're stood for an entire shift to wear trainers. Uh, and really that was only introduced to then give you a benefit if you met your sales, you could then come in wearing your own shoes. Um, and I, I have a number of these forms that I talked about earlier saying Jamie must perform better. You know, he must hit his sales or he's going to 
you know, lose his job. And throughout the entire six months, I never had a proper contract. I was on probation the entire time, so I could be fired on the spot at any point during that six months. And eventually they said, you have to leave. Uh, you've not made your sales, and we're going to let you go. And so I said, I'd like to have a, a, an exit interview. Um, but this is common practice, to have a, an interview with somebody when you leave. Uh, and they'd offered it, but they were kind of unsure. And what transpired is nobody had ever, ever accepted their offer of an exit interview before. Um, <laughs> mainly because, like most of my colleagues and the people I worked with, they took their headphones off, they put them down on the table, they told the supervisor they were going, and they never came back. Uh, so in this bizarre moment of being sat in this exit interview that they didn't, weren't quite sure what to do with, the supervisor actually tried to use what's called a CNR uh, technique, a clarify and reassure technique, which you use with somebody when they're unsure whether they want life insurance. And they tried to use that back on to me so that I wouldn't leave. And I had to explain, you fired me. This is an exit interview, and I'm going to have to leave, uh, and I don't want to stay. But it kind of highlights this. There may be all these HR practices in place and so on, but these had never been used. Um, and what I want to finish on is to say that contemporary work has changed a lot. Work continues to change, particularly in the service sector. And it's hard for research to understand what's happening in this kind of work you know, when it's behind gatekeepers like call center managers or so on. But the work remains central to our understanding of, of the world, of society. And we need more research like this that goes into workplaces but doesn't just speak as an outsider. This is what I think of your work. That tries to maintain a dialogue between subject and researcher, between insider and outsider. Because workers themselves are best placed to describe, to analyse, to criticise and ultimately to change their work. And that should be our starting point when we undertake these kind of projects. Thank you. So next we have Alpa Shah. Alpa debated Jamie's book in great detail for the BBC, uh, but Alpa is an ethnographer who studied so many different, different groups of people who will respond now to Jamie. Thank you, Alpa. Thank you very much for inviting me. Um, it's rare that one gets to meet the author of a book that one's reviewed and actually discuss it with them, or you know, in this case, of course, being on the jury of this prize. Um, so I'm really pleased to be here, and I want to congratulate Jamie on a fine book. Now, the best of ethnography will, at its very least, enable us to imagine what life might be like for the people who we are studying. And I must say that after reading your book, Jamie, I do think twice before hanging up uh, on that latest annoying sales call, imagining the sweltering airless room with fluorescent strip lighting, the loud and busy environment, uh, office walls uh, plastered with you know, meaningless um, platitudes of being committed, being proactive, being dynamic. Um, you know, workers' names and sales targets, um, supervisors keenly watching over the poor person I'm talking to who is under great pressure to make hundreds of calls uh, a day in the hope that he or she might hook somebody. Um, 
that that call is now for me certainly a moment of pause, a moment to think about the life of the poor person at the end of the line and the pressures that they may be under and the trying world in which they're working. Precarious jobs, poorly paid, with no job security, no pensions or other welfare benefits, hired on a contract and fired at a moment's notice are the main form of employment in today's world. In India, where I work, 92% of the workforce is such informal labor, and even some of the most formal, established formal sector companies, including multinationals, depend on informal labor. So many of the working conditions that Jamie describes in his book are not an anomaly, but they are in fact the norm, which is why it is so important for us to try to understand them. And while I think quantitative measures are important and take us some way to understanding those who work as informal precarious labor, there is no replacement for qualitative techniques and in particular long-term ethnographic fieldwork as a participant observer um, in understanding what life might be like for the workers and in understanding their multiple social characteristics. And I think the potential new insights revealed by ethnographic study is why we, I mean, I'm part of the anthropology department here at the LSC, and we generally advise our students that they must spend at least 18 months doing fieldwork. They must learn the language of the people they're studying. They must live with them. They must essentially become them. And the idea being that it is only this long-term immersion through this long-term immersion that we can get new insights about the world, challenge the, the, the knowledge and the theories that we came equipped with, and therefore bring new knowledge into the world in the light of what is emerging from the lives of the people we are studying. And I think in that sense, Jamie's book gives us a very fine taste of what it might be like to become a call center worker. It gives us a flavor of the drudgery of work, what it might feel like to have to make three to 400 calls a day, the constant pressure to make sales, the emotional or affective labor, which Jamie just gave us a taste of, that is so draining that goes into the making of each call, the reasons why people might not last long on the job, why there is such a high turnover, what I found particularly compelling um, in, in, about Jamie's book is the degree of surveillance that he, he describes and that workers are subject to. Since the systems are computerized, you know, these phones are computerized, as Jamie tells us, every single action a worker takes is recorded, monitored, compared from the number of sales to the time spent on a call, between calls, and on a break. And alongside these statistics, which the managers collect on each employee, every phone call is digitally stored and can be recalled and replayed at a moment's notice. That's what Jamie tells us. If that is not enough, sitting amidst the workers was in Jamie's case, which he didn't talk about but is in his book, it was an undercover consultant there to patrol the workers to increase productivity. Yet... As Jamie points out, amidst this tightly patrolled workforce, workforce, Jamie finds resistance, workers' resistance, albeit mainly in hidden transcripts as very much as weapons of the week, as Jim Scott would have called them, the stretching out of tea breaks, the morale-raising and the morale-raising buzz sessions with the supervisors, the taking off a sickie, um, for instance. 
such informal labor working under precarious conditions is very hard to mobilize. They are rarely unionized and they can always be fired in any moment and replaced by an entirely new workforce. Jamie's work made me ask lots of comparative questions, which I would love to hear his thoughts on. Um, does the degree and aggression of surveillance and monitoring of workers enabled by the technology of the call center make the exploitation and alienation of the call center workforce any different to contract workers in other forms of precarious work? Say, for example, you know, a chicken factory or a sandwich-making factory. Does this matter for the strategies of resistance Indeed, what is specific about the conditions discussed here in comparison to workers in so many other sectors of the economy? And what about the comparison, comparison between call center workers here and those in other countries like India, on which we now have several you know, ethnographic accounts and novels, and where call center work is often seen actually as, a pres as prestigious because of the ability to speak and learn English and to enter a modern world. It is certainly a better option than working as a road construction worker or in a brick kiln carrying heavy loads of bricks and attracts those who are better off and aspiring for upward mobility and might be one reason why call center workers in India rarely mobilize beyond the ways in which Jamie describes. Certainly such work cannot be seen through a national lens, but it is part of a global division of labor, and this will have massive implications for any mobilizations against its grueling terms and conditions, and also for our analysis. I would actually have liked to hear much more about the workers themselves. So one gets a very strong sense of what their lives might be like through Jamie's experiences, but one actually hears very little about the other workers. How did they feel about their work? Was it as reported of the Indian call center workers, or did they see it as something demeaning, a job to simply put a loaf of bread on the table? Who were they? You know, Jamie, you tell us that they were mostly women. Were they treated differently to men on the call center floor? Did they know each other socially prior to working? What was their class and ethnic background? Is it possible that some may indeed have worked in a chicken factory or a sandwich factory or some such before? Where do their partners and other family members work, and how do they see call center work in relation to what others from the same backgrounds are doing? Was this job seen as a step up or a step down? What was their everyday work and home lives like? How did their work in the call centers play out at home? So I admire Jamie for the ambition in his study, and I particularly welcome the questions he asks about resistance and the possibility of ruthless criticism of the existing order that he ends with. For the possibility of any such struggles towards this end, we would, I suggest, need a more holistic understanding of the workforce, their backgrounds, and the social relations between them. And this would need to be not only within, but also outside the workplace, at home, and in the communities they come from, and need to be thought about comparatively in terms of the global division of labor. So I thank Jamie. Thank you for taking us some, some steps, some very significant steps towards that end. Thank yeah. you very much, Alba.
So, Alper, I think you asked about 12 questions there. <laughs> <laughs> yes, take your pick. <laughs> and 12 really difficult ones as well, you know. So, Jamie, do you want to respond to, to some of them? So, I think call centres have become emblematic of some of the changes, the contemporary changes at work. Uh, so, they've become emblematic of surveillance, uh, of the kind of electronic and computational forms of control. Uh, and of short-term precarious contracts. Um, but what I think is important about them is they have been, in, in essence, a testing ground for many of these technologies and techniques. Mm. Um, so it's not true that this is a, a recent phenomenon in call centers. The, the, the relationship between telephones and computers allows uh, the application of these things much earlier than in other workplaces. So you have the testing of these kinds of strategies uh, at a much earlier stage. And I think... You know, the Ubers and Deliveroo's of today are, in essence, you know, developing on those management strategies that, that were first tested in call centers. So I think it's important for understanding, say, the gig economy today. Um, you can see its roots in, in call centers. And so I think it's important to understand how people resisted. You know, did they resist it when it first came in? And I did an interview in the book talking about these first attempts to stop electronic surveillance. But also to show us, you know that these, when management is successful in using these kind of techniques, they spread outwards into other workplaces. So, you know, the classic example is healthcare and education. You know, increasingly, these kinds of methods being used uh, elsewhere. And in Braverman's kind of classic terms, degrading work, you know, making work progressively worse and worse as an experience for people who work it. Uh, so that's question one. Um, <laughs> I think three, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, so, the, yeah, there are three that I want to talk about. So, the second one is what's it like compared to working in a, in a chicken factory or, or, or making sandwiches? Is in call centers, it's not the body of workers that's put to work, but it's the minds, it's the emotions of, of workers that are put to work. Now, of course, they come attached to a body that has to stand and gesticulate and you know, be motivated at the beginning of the shift and so on. But it's about trying to mobilize human interaction, emotional, effective labor. Uh, at work. And why I think it's important to make this distinction, you know, you can go and work in a chicken shop, a chicken factory, and, and you don't have to be made to feel happy at the beginning of the shift, you don't have to perform happiness while you're, you're working the assembly line. Is this has a different effect on people. And I think it's important to look at the labor process, what it is people actually do at work, because that has a, an important relationship to the kinds of resistance that are possible. So stopping the assembly line in the, in the chicken factory, you know, based on the kind of work that's happening, different strategies of resistance are effective. You know, there's a, an example of the smile strike on Cathay Pacific Airlines of refusing to smile as part of industrial action, um, which was successful. You know, understanding that the labor process there is about smiling, also about serving alcohol, which they also stopped doing during the strike, which, you know, had quite an effect later on. But thinking about how what we do at work should inform how people can resist. And so it's not to say that working in a call centre is necessarily worse or better than working in a chicken factory. They're different, and those differences are important. Um, and then finally, on, on the other workers, I mean, when we think of ethnography, we think of it as a method, but also as an output. Um, and the written form is the classic kind of ethnographic output. Um, and whenever I talk about the book, I always think which bits to focus on. Because I could talk about, and I'm sure you're all grateful to hear, I 
didn't talk for an hour, but you kind of feel like you could go on about all the details and all the little stories and experiences and shared moments and so on that, that, that you have over that time. But to speak a little bit to the backgrounds and the experiences of other workers is being undercover, you know, you don't want to describe people in detail. You know, even if you have consent from people and you, you've spoken to people, lots of these experiences are general experiences that people have across call centres and across workplaces. Um, but the backgrounds, the backgrounds have the similar backgrounds to, to people involved in precarious work in London. Predominantly young in this kind of sector, predominantly female, and so long as you could speak English to what was considered to be an acceptable level, as if you were a native speaker, it meant that there were a range of different ethnicities and, uh, and social backgrounds. And in a strange way, there were accents of valorised in complicated ways. So if you're from the, the north of Ireland or from Birmingham or Newcastle, you're seen to be a better salesperson. You know, these are accents that are apparently worth having to, to sell with. So you have these kind of differences with Indian call centres, for example, where people are expected to take on accents, maybe take on a fake name and so on, that you have these different pressures that, that, that people face. But in general, people were students or recent graduates, and this was not seen as a job that you wanted to do long-term. Although some people ended up doing these kinds of work long-term, nobody would say in this call centre, I am a call centre worker. They were an aspiring musician, an artist, you know, a drama student. You know, whatever it was, they had an identity that they would have preferred to be, you know, that's what they wanted to be, and this was just a means to pay the rent to a dodgy landlord or to afford the... The, the, the travel card. And so that means it's a diverse, diverse backgrounds. Um, because like many people in London circulating between low-paid, precarious jobs, moving to the next one when you've had enough of a particular supervisor or so on. Um, but it was considered, like in the UK more generally, not a job that you would want to be doing. You know. Thank you. I'm actually going to uh, pull a question from the audience here because I dragged Clive Nwonka along. He's the academic program coordinator of the Atlantic Fellows Program in the in in Inequalities Institute. And I realised when I was discussing the book with Clive, he'd worked in a call centre. And kind of almost, you did it while you were doing your PhD? Yeah. Um... So I, I thought it'd be quite interesting. He'd like to ask you a question too. Hi. Um, so that was a great presentation, both of you. I really appreciated it. Yeah, so I have um, both an intellectual but also an emotional connection with your research because, as Bev mentioned, um, I spent two years um, after my BA working in a call centre in the private sector. Then during my MA, my PhD, and the three years I spent working as a sessional, I worked full-time in a call centre in the public sector as well. So in that period, I was kind of twice a precariat, um, working as a sessional, but also as um, a call centre operative. And um, what I want to kind of maybe kind of make a contribution to your research is outlining some of the kind of key tenets of um, call centre work. Um, there's a key difference in tenor, I think, in receiving um, an outbound call and actually making an inbound call. Because when you're making an outbound call, as I think you were doing, Jamie, you have a degree of control and planning over your conversation. Whereas when you're receiving a complaint, you actually have no autonomy. You're kind of um, purely receptive to the angst of um, a customer. Um, so what 
I kind of gained from this was understanding the whole neoliberal agenda in terms of micromanaging not just labor, but one's human life as well. Um, just made some notes here. So one of the things that was quite striking about that work was the whole idea of multi-skilling and making sure that um, the call center operative, and this was quite a large call center, I won't mention the name, um, that you were able to kind of transcend different kind of roles, which in effect actually made sure that labor was circulating quite ad hoc to different areas of kind of business. Um, weekend work was almost compulsory. So for two years, I didn't have a weekend off. Um, that was both Saturdays and Sundays as well. There was no difference in pay on the weekends as well. So again, it's affect your work-life balance when you have to work I know, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, you take off Thursday and Friday, then you're back in for the weekend. And that could change from working from 8 a.m. on a Sunday morning to 4 p.m. Or in the winter sometimes, you work from 12 p.m. to 8 p.m. on a Sunday evening. And still with another shift on a Monday morning as well. So again, um, I mentioned the, kind of the psychological effect of this kind of work. Um, but also, um, there is a division in labor as well. Um, often you find that some people were working as permanent labor and others who were temps or you know, part-time contracts or quite precarious in terms of two or three-month contracts as well. And what that created, it created a quite competitive hierarchical nature in terms of those with permanent contracts often took a quite lackadaisical approach to their work, whereas those on the more precarious term contracts were trying constantly to impress their team managers. Um, there's also quite an acute racial divide I found um, in the call centre, whereas the second I worked in had four different floors, and the call centre agents were based on the bottom one, and that was seen as the lowest form of employment in the whole kind of um, organisation. And that was predominantly dominated by ethnic minorities of all ages and all races as well, and um, all genders. And as you kind of climbed higher and higher in the kind of company, the whiteness just seemed to kind of emerge kind of bigger and bigger and bigger. And um, that really produced a kind of need for, as you mentioned about motivation, one of the ways that managers try to instill motivation was by the promise of promotion and career development. And so if you hit certain kind of targets um, per month, there was a chance you may come out to another department that was removed away from the kind of precarious, quite derogatory nature, kind of taking a phone call. What happened then was the criteria for this kind of labor and this time of um, mobilization was quite arbitrary. So it wasn't so much kind of based on how you performed in terms of your core skills or your kind of stats, but more how you performed in a kind of cultural setting where you kind of friends with a team manager some nepotism going on there if you went to the pub on the weekends with your kind of bosses. So there's a kind of real strange kind of social dynamic happening there in terms of even the breakout areas, you're constantly negotiating kind of people about where the next job comes from. So all in all, I mean, um, what it does is actually instill some kind of incubus in the mind of the CEO agent that they're solely in control of their own destinies where they're clearly not. And... What I'm interested in, I think, from yourselves is um, what was the sociological or so psychological effect of um, the very, very nature of that work and all those kind of contextualizations on the CSAs that you were observing? So, thanks. Great. So, what, what is that effect of smiling all the time, being forced to perform and be happy? What is that effect? Thank you. 
So I'm going to talk about this in two ways. The first, the effect on me, and then the effect that I saw on other people. Um, when I launched the book, I remember saying, somebody asked a question, you know, what effect did this have on you? And I said, oh, you know, it was a bit difficult. Uh, and my old housemate at the time was sat in the crowd and then made a contribution later on. He was like, no, you used to come home, fall asleep, eating beans on toast on the sofa, uh, and then, you know, wake up and go and, and do it again. So clearly was having an effect. And I noticed that I didn't like making phone calls anymore. So unsurprisingly. <laughs> unsurprisingly, unsurprisingly. But then you leave the shift and you want to meet up with your friends or you want to make a plan. And you think, I'm not going to call them. You know, I don't want to pick up the phone again. So sh shifting the way that you interact with other people. But I think it was different for me because I had that ulterior motive. You know, I was there to find out about it. Which I think shifts, in a sense, what the experience is like. Um, but for other people... Being able to vent about work was very, very important. So, you know, I think not to, to say that people should take up smoking if you want to organise at work, but going out to the smoking break, the moment you're away from the gaze of management, you know, the, the, the constant surveillance, people vent about work and talk about the effect it's having on them. And, you know, they'd never buy this product, so why do they have to sell it? Why do they treat it like this and so on? And this continues at the pub. Um, and I think one of the important organisational things was saying we don't go for a drink with the supervisors um, because you can't vent about work if you go to the pub with the supervisors um, so in terms of kind of trade union organising I think that's an important thing to do um, but you could see it most clearly when people left you know I remember one of the, the people I used to work next to a lot of the time genuinely considering with another person punching each other in the head to get off the shift, kind of joking about it, saying, could we stage a fight and you know, we'll make it look like we've had an argument and then we can leave. But that sense of there being a refusal, a refusal to submit to all of the things that are pushed on you with sales targets and a humour in how to deal with it. So finding ways around it. You, know, you can't manage people that strictly. They find ways around it. Um, and so it's a kind of tale of two, two sides, I think. It's bleak, it's controlling, it's surveilling, you know, it's all of these things. But yet people still find a way around it. And I think that's, it's not, a, it's not a kind of one example where that happens. When you put people in that kind of situation, inevitably, there, you know, there is that, that conflict around it. Um, and so that's the kind of, the corrective story is to, to focus on those bits where people turned it into something better, perhaps. Okay, so we'll open out for more questions. If you stick your hand up, up, there's roving microphones that can be sent to you. So one over there. Thank you. Um, then we'll pass it behind after that. Thank you so much for the lecture. Um, it was really interesting. Um, I, w I worked as a facer for Amnesty International. It was only for two months, but... Um, and we also did exercises like to motivate ourselves and constantly gave high fives and those sorts of things. And they were fun for two months. But we talked a lot about um, that we were not selling something, selling a product. We were um, like um, signing people up to for Amnesty International. And it was like, it felt like an important cause. So I was just wondering if you had some thoughts on do you think that something would have been different if, if you uh, felt like for the cause? Um, and then I have another question. Um, I was wondering if you used some of uh, Slavoj Žižek's thoughts on what he calls caffeine-free critique. Um, 
<laughs> you can use it to understand like people working in Starbucks often don't work under very nice uh, working conditions and they are also told the customer is always right and some of the similar things you're describing and um, one way of giving critique is that they serve the customers uh, coffee with no caffeine and <laughs> so I was wondering if you see uh, if that can be related to what you saw um, and then the last question is did you meet any ethical dilemmas because the people working there didn't know that uh, you were researching um, that's it Um, okay, so the first one, I, I actually did a pilot study in a, a charity fundraising call center uh, before working in the other one. And it's funny, I, I always think about it, you're, you are selling something. You're selling the, the fuzzy good feeling of donating to charity uh, in, a, in a kind of strange way. Um, because often these call centers have nothing to do with the charity. So lots of them are a private company that tenders, buys the right to, to raise money. Um, and in a kind of there used to be a call centre that did this in, uh, in North East London and uh, a reporter went undercover there and by exposing the work practices there it was very quickly shut down um, because they were saying, you know, target vulnerable people and so on, you know, these are the ways to, to make the sales and so on. Uh, and I think it's a kind of interesting example because it shows about the politics of knowledge that if there are things you can unveil about a workplace if you go undercover that can cause a lot of problems. For example, my contract had written into it, you, you cannot have your terms and conditions collectively bargained on by a trade union, um, which is technically not a legal thing to put in a contract. But if you sign it, I mean, it kind of doesn't mean anything anyway because there wasn't a trade union. But there are these kind of practices that elsewhere we wouldn't accept. Um, and so in terms of ethics, the way I, I approach that is thinking about how do I protect the subjects in a sense, the, the people I worked with, I wouldn't have wanted them to lose their jobs or to, to get into to trouble and so on. Um, but I think ethically, research has a responsibility to speak to power mm. um, and to talk about these practices. Uh, and so whilst I didn't tell the people who managed me or, or the owner of the call centre what I was doing, I did tell the people I worked alongside. Um, and I offered to let people read things I wrote, unsurprisingly. They didn't want to read about call centres after a shift in a call centre. <laughs> so instead, we, we talked through some of the ideas. And I think that is ethically important. If you're writing about other people, or you know, you're writing about a kind of work or a community, finding a way to have dialogue around it is very important. Um, and so you know, I think today in universities, we don't consider ethics so much in that way. We consider the legal indemnity of the university and you know, is there going to be a legal case and so on. For me, ethics is really about, you know, thinking about what you're doing and your impact and how you negotiate the world. I think that's much more important. Uh, and caffeine-free, it's very difficult to do sabotage in a call centre uh, because everything is tracked, surveilled and so on. Um, and so that was one of the things it was very hard to find, other than occasionally getting headsets that had been broken or, you know, everything was recorded. So if you were to say something wrong on the phone... You know, it could be recalled at any time. They probably still have a record of every single call I've made somewhere. Um, so unfortunately, not, not in Those that call centre. levels of surveillance are a f phenomenal, actually. Mm. So behind in the purple, uh, sorry, pink, and then grey T-shirt at the front desk. Uh, so my question is, how do you think, um, 
So it's twofold. One, how do you think managers create a silent social, um, psychological contracts with the per people they work with? And do you think they also are surveilled and are under other psychological contracts that they're caused to create such workplace cultures? Yeah, so the, the supervisors earn very little extra than the people who worked on the call centre floor, and their wages were much more uh, reliant on bonuses. Uh, so it could mean, for example, the difference of a third in their income if they met their bonuses or not. And those bonuses were directly related to the sales of the people they were, were working with. Um, so in essence, they were surveilled very tightly, they were very controlled, they were shouted at by the, the, the managers above them, and they then repeated that back onto people. Partly because it's difficult to get somebody to sell life insurance. You can't tell them one thing and they'll magically do it. So they would get more and more desperate throughout the month, and by the end of the month it would be very uncomfortable and they'd be shouting and so on. But in terms of a psychological contract, it's a strange one because they admitted that the work was difficult, stressful, that people didn't want to be there. And so it was almost a contract of saying, if you come in, you make your sales, you can leave early, you don't want to be here, we know that, just do your bit and, and move on, which is a very unusual experience at work. Usually we're told, you know, isn't this the most wonderful thing that you're doing, whether it's serving coffee in, in Starbucks or not. So there's a, a different kind of contract, that, psychological contract that's made there. Okay, so great T-shirt. Cool. Uh, hey, I just want to say great... Uh Great lecture so far. It's really enjoying it. Um, uh, I just want to preface my questions as well by saying um, that it's, I think it's fantastic you've gone out and actually done an everyday job. Um, I think a lot with ethnog you know with ethnographers, there's a lot of um, uh, uh, pressure to go to an exotic location, uh, you know, like Solomon Islands, PNG, these sort of these sort of places um, to uh, you know, and it's just ha that long history that ethnographers have had. Um, yeah, and, and also it builds on that, uh, that idea that there's a real disconnect between academia and the people they should be serving, and I think that's sort of like trying to like, uh, fill that chasm, I guess. Um, so the question I had is uh, going back to maybe the methodology, um, and specifically incognito ethnography, which um, I think in the past has, has been fraught with problems and issues, um, especially like in the, uh, the colonial period, like where I'm from in uh, New Zealand and Australia. Um, there's just like a real awareness that um, undercover ethnography can have real effects on the people that you're studying and the people that you're working with. Um, and you sort of just talked on it before, uh, uh, responding to that question back there. So maybe I was thinking, um, uh, you talked about output, and I was hoping that you could talk more about how ethnography is a force for good, hopefully for good, in most attempts, and maybe what you're going to do to build on the book and the work you've done so far into the future because um, you've obviously sort of mentioned what you've done in the present. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, I actually, so I, I made a, a big effort, and Bev was very kind about the rewriting of the book. I rewrote the entire PhD thesis. I didn't originally intend to, but it kind of, I got a bit carried away. Um, because I wanted it to be accessible. You know, I wanted to be able to give it to somebody I worked alongside in the call centre who didn't do a PhD and doesn't read reams of obscure critical theory to understand it and engage with it. Um, not that I'm saying that's all I do. Um, but I think it's important to make our ideas accessible. You know, and that doesn't mean dumbing things down. It means writing in a way that people can access. Um, and so I have two forthcoming uh, kind of plans for thinking about output. Uh, the first is to... Um, 
There are these kind of graphic novel style pamphlets, um, which uh, you can find online. There's one about restaurant work and about organizing in restaurant work, where it has small parts of text and then illustrations to talk about the experience of work and how to organize. And it's going to be tied in with a, a trade union to say, you know, if you're interested in finding out more about this, you can contact this union and so on. Um, and I also got a grant from LSE uh, to, to make a video game about call centers, um, a short interactive experience to think what it would be like to make something interactive to present some of the findings of ethnography, um, which is an experiment and hopefully will uh, engage people who might not otherwise you know, read, a, read a, a long book or something. Uh, can I just do a quick follow-up? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, do, uh, did you uh, discuss that with your interlocutors uh, to a certain extent, like with these follow-ups? Or is that something you just came up in your article? So, uh, not with the, the people I worked with. Um, it's been a few years now since I was in the call centre and people are scattered all over the place and have, have moved on now. Um, but this is more from kind of subsequent projects and, and I'm doing some stuff with delivery workers at the moment, thinking through different ways you can, you can output research. Um, I hope that clarifies it. Okay, so over there. Jamie, you're, you're, you're quite sniffy about the, the reward of going home early for hitting the targets. But isn't there a way of saying that that is the supervisor handing the employees that kind of precious gift of actually agency and, 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 and autonomy? So, so let, let, me be, let me be clear, I really enjoyed going home early. It was a, a fantastic, fantastic reward um, because you didn't want to be on the call centre floor. Um, I think just what's interesting about it is the fact that the best reward for the work is escaping the work early, I think is very, very insightful about the quality of the work. You could, for example, you know, let people have some time off in between phone calls or maybe not you know, the reward could be less pressure or less surveillance. The fact that it's mobilising people's hatred or, you know, uh, bad feelings towards the work as a way to get them to work harder, I think is just, it's an interesting example um, and better than a £5 voucher raffle draw that was usually what we were entered into, which is a bit less exciting, maybe. Okay, so in purple at the front and then... <coughs> Um, you, you took me back to a. Me- I, have a, I do have a question, but you took me back to a memory. University days, Minneapolis, selling ads for a newspaper, and every morning at eight o'clock, we had to gather in this guy's basement, who decided that his, he'd learned everything he knew about sales from Reverend Ike, if anybody remembers Reverend Ike, uh, and so every morning he would stand on this table and want us to shout hallelujah. Well, three of us were Jewish women and, and this other guy, and we were not going to stand there in his basement at 8 o'clock in the morning and shout hallelujah. You know? but, so you took me back to that, and, and it made me smile and remember. But when people on call centers are, you know, they won't take no. And we got told this, you know, no is just means I want more information. No, no means no. Damn it. You know? And when they won't just say, no, I'm not interested when I'm doing it politely, and I get shirty, and then I put the phone down. What happens to that person in the call center when I slam the phone down on them? I mean, as somebody who had the, the phone slammed down on me many, many, many times, um, you just you, you brush it off. But having the phone slammed down on you is not the worst interaction. There are much worse ones. People telling you, you know, 
what, what horrible end they would like you to reach or so on. And I think, in a way, you know, getting that, that quicker no is better because then you can move on to someone you might be able to make a sale on. Now, obviously, if somebody's getting no's over and over and over again, they're going to get under more pressure and so on. But I, you know, to go back to the comment earlier about how it changes how you interact with call center workers, is now if I receive a sales call, I'm very clear that I'm not interested, I'm not going to buy it, but, you know, I hope you have a good day. Because that's something you don't hear a lot in cold call sales. You know, have a good day or so on. Um, but that just saying no and hanging up is, is part of that, the process. You know, you get that over and over again. Hi, thank you very much for the talk. Um, I was wondering if you share some thoughts on the wider, how you might explain this sort of phenomenon that's going on in workplace and this sort of, I think you're touching on, the total lack of a sort of dialogism and you know, people just working on their own, not working as group collectives towards the common purpose. And did you get a sense in, you know, that this is an okay and acceptable way that people are getting used to working? Um, and also how they interact with customers, this just complete monological approach to how we you know, are doing things. And the second part of the question was, you've clearly outlined a bad call center. So with that experience, what do you think would be a very good call center? Because we're obviously going to be living with these for a very long time. So I think to start with the second part, I think it's a really interesting question what will happen to call centers. Because in a sense, they're already changing. Uh, so increasingly they're now contact centers, uh, you know, increasingly using other means for you to get in touch uh, with companies or so on as a kind of interaction between customers and companies. And I think really the tendency towards automation in call centers is something that's already been happening for a long time. When you type the numbers to go through, that's part of automation. The difficulty is the sales part. So the sales part you can't automate away. Um, and so that's something that's going to continue having that customer interaction where you're trying to get people to give their money over um, is a difficult thing to, 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 to automate. And I think in the kind of large call centers, it's very individualizing, but it's also collective. And there's a strange experience there of you could not speak to anybody else around you for the whole day because you're just on the phone. But bringing that many people together with a shared experience... I think cuts through some of what we feel, you know, maybe in a city like London, of the individualizing tendencies of neoliberalism, you know, of not feeling collective solidarity and so on, is people form an identity around call centers, even if they don't want to be seen as call center workers. You share that common experience, which in a strange way then cuts across the individualizing nature of call centers. The difficulty is how to articulate that today. You know, joining a trade union isn't something lots of young people do anymore. Um, you know, it's increasingly rarer and rarer. But finding a way to connect the best traditions of that to the experience of work today is how new kinds of organisation will come about. And that would be how we get good call centres, you know, from actually having a workplace voice that shapes them. OK, I'm just going to use Chair's prerogative for a moment to follow on from that, because we've got one right at the back and one in the middle. So as you move the microphone... I'm really interested in, in mobilisation. How do you mobilise such a transient workforce because by the time you get them organised they're going to be going somewhere else and it's mm. similar to the Indian situation 92% of informal workers 
And there's the Agawala book, Rina Agawala's mm. book on um, mobilising informal workers, mm. and she shows how it's all done through welfare now. You mobilise people around welfare, not around labour. Mm. Now, does that work as an argument mm. for you? So I think, uh, answering this in two ways, I think work has always had an element of precarity. You know, there's always been precariousness at work. Uh, and there have been previous ways in which people can organise around those precarious workplaces. So if you think of IWW organising in the US around mining and in heavy industry, but what you need is something that brings people together across different workplaces. So at the moment, if you were to join a, tr a trade union in, in London, you might have to move branch every time you move job. And that is something that people are unlikely to follow up on. It's another burden to remember. <coughs> And so I think we need more flexible forms of workplace organising that can link people between workplaces. But I also think there are other issues that can mobilise people. You know, in London, housing. You know, we've seen, you know, the beginnings of renters' unions, of what happens when housing is, is underfunded, run down, you know, the effects of austerity on housing. Similarly on transport. You know, there are other mobilising factors. But if we're going to change work, that organising has to happen in the workplace. And you can see that huge turnover, rather than being a big weakness, could become a big strength. If you can move into another industry or another job relatively easily uh, in a large city like London, the costs of taking action are lower. You know, why not try to do something collective when you chuck in that job at that point? You know, the barrier to, 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 to industrial action, as it were, is much lower. Um, it's just a question of finding successful ways to build upon it. Yeah, no, exactly. I, I mean, I think Rina Agarwala's book is describing a kind of common phenomenon where people are not able to mobilise in the workplace, mm. but the unions, what they're doing is mobilising, getting better housing for people, mm. getting electricity, getting sanitation, mm. etc. Um, that's, I think, a part of the story, but I think there is still very strong labour mobilisation going on, which is no replacement for improvement of wages, improvement in the terms and conditions of work. So while there are organisations that are doing welfare measures, there's also still strong mobilisation emerging from below. Uh, it's just that it's actually harder to see um, because, you know, this, this, this labour is so precarious. It's hidden. Uh, so it's much hard, harder for us to spot, you know, these yeah. instances. But, yeah. So very different. Okay, so back. So one right at the back and one in the middle. So go middle first and then we'll go to the back. Hello, thanks very much. A very interesting discussion. Um, I have a question in relation to the kind of audio recordings of, of the kind of dialogues you have, or not necessarily dialogues, but the chats you have with people on the phones, aside from perhaps being used as a kind of disciplining measure. I wonder if this information has been used in other ways, either to improve sales or to teach computers in terms of voice recognition or, you know, is, or has it been sold as big data? And um, what are the kind of, if, if you have any in insight into that, what are the kind of controls or kind of regulation around that? So in, in the call centre that I worked in and in lots, the, the, the audio file is the contract for purchasing the product. Um, so that's why there is digital storage of them because if a customer calls up and says, I never took out this policy, you can say, we have you on the phone doing it. Um, there is data protection around it. Um, so the, every call you have to explain that things are being stored and so on. Um, and so I think the, the two primary reasons are contractual and disciplining of the workforce. 
it's kind of like a sword of Damocles hanging above you. You know, if, I wanted, if they wanted to fire me and actually go through a, a kind of court around it, it wouldn't take long to find enough infractions of the rules across every phone call I'd ever made to fire me legitimately. Um, and I think that's an important reason to do it. I don't think the call centre I worked in um, used it for any other purposes, but you can see that that would be an important resource. You know, machine learning, if we're trying to automate parts of call centres or whatever, will need that data, and no doubt somewhere there are call centres that are monetizing that. Um, it would be dubious and probably illegal, but that doesn't mean people aren't going to do it somewhere. Good question. Mm. Hi, thank you for a really interesting talk. Um, so I'm really interested is about your role as an ethnographer within a call centre. So I work for a large public sector organisation that probably has upwards of a thousand call centres. Um, and one of the interesting things about call centres is the fact that actually the people who work in those areas know the service they're providing better than probably the management of those organisations. Um, and one of the kind of nascent ideas that, that we have is actually utilising the ability of people who are working on the front line of those organisations to be able to um, actually take control of the service that they're providing and actively iterate it and change it over time. So I'm kind of just interested in your perspective on that. Is, is that realistic? Is that something that could happen within the current infrastructure and kind of economic dynamic of a call centre that we currently have? Um, and just generally, what do you think about that idea? So... The call centre that I worked in sold insurance, but it didn't provide insurance. It didn't deal with any claims. Um, so although we were selling a product, I knew nothing about it, nothing other than what was on, what was on the script. Uh, I didn't know how the script was made. You know, they just appeared on the computer screen. I often asked, could I find out about who wrote this? And they said, oh, no, no, you know, we, we don't talk about that. Um, so the kind of knowledge that you have of what's actually going on in the call centre is very, very cursory. Um, you know, it wouldn't matter if I was selling cars or apples as long as I had the script uh, to do it because, you know, I probably know more about apples than life insurance. Um, and so in a way, those kind of high-pressure, high-volume sales call centres have abstracted the labour to a point where it doesn't really matter what you're, you're doing as long as you're provided with the tools to do it. And that's different to some of the more specialised ones. So if you're offering medical advice or whatever service it is you're doing. Uh, and there, I think you can improve the work by letting people have more say in how it's organised. But I don't know how I could improve the sale of insurance when I don't even know which company is underwriting it, you know? Um, and I think it's that kind of... The establishment of these charity call centres that have nothing to do with charities, it's a kind of sign of the sickness of the kind of contemporary economy, that it's trying to squeeze profits out of areas that, you know, why are we trying to repackage life insurance from one place and sell it to another, is a kind of a real sign of failing profitability, I think, um, where you can't, unfortunately, do what, what you're suggesting. Okay, well, we'll end on that. <laughs> so thank you very much for a huge range of questions. Now, Jamie will be signing his book for 15 minutes outside the lecture theatre, but I would like to say it really is 
admirable. And I was talking to a trade unionist this morning who said this is one of the most readable books that could be given to people in the contemporary about workplace conditions. Mm. And what I am so full of awe about this book is that I went through all of Jamie's incredibly dense theoretical debates, you know, Marxist autonomous theories through to workers' inquiries, whatever else, and he's made them almost invisible, but inc- they're, they're all in here, but very deceptively. So if you really want to understand the complexity of some of these really complex debates that have been going on, you know, since the 60s in Italy that apply mm. worldwide, they're in there. It's an incredibly readable book, very, very unusual for an academic ethnography to be this readable. Mm. Great stories, great vignettes, and well done you, Jamie, well done. Mm.